The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Kurt. My name is Lee Eric Fesco. I'm the director of discipleship at Christ Presbyterian Church. Once again, it's uh, my privilege to be here with you all today on the first Sunday of Advent, which means this is it. This is it. Here we are, another trip around the sun, and we've reached the holiday season. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. And now that we're past Thanksgiving, That officially marks the start of Christmas. By most measures, it is now okay to proceed with Christmas, though it does seem to get earlier and earlier each year. Uh, As we were preparing to have people over at our house for for Thanksgiving this last week, my wife was was playing some Christmas music, and my oldest son called a foul. You can't play Christmas music until after Thanksgiving, he said. Well, now it's after. Now it's after. And for those who observe Christmas, I don't think at this point anyone would object to now celebrating Christmas with with all the lights and the trees and the shopping and all the other things that go along with Christmas. It's here. It's here. Merry Christmas. But why do we do it? Why do we do it? If you run around church circles very much, there's always someone who wants to remind us why we celebrate Christmas. And I suppose this year that person is going to be me. I would like to remind you about that this year. But, but let me just say from the start, I, I love Christmas. I, I really do. Christmas to me is winter's consolation. I'm a summer person. I love the warm, wear, the warm weather and the thought of, of going to the beach. I, I love the summertime. When fall comes around, I know for many of you, it's a welcome sight to see the leaves uh, changing and starting to turn and you, you break out the sweaters and the hot chocolate and, and you crank up the fireplace. And I know you love that. For me, I always get a little sad. I always get a little sad in the fall because I know it means that summer is over and it's about to get cold. Uh, but I don't stay sad long 
because I know that Christmas is on the way. And I love, I love, love Christmas. Why do I love it? I love it because of Jesus. Yes, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, we we like to take a moment to stop in the midst of all the hustle of the season and remember it's a holiday to commemorate the birth of Christ. But let me tell you, that's not all it is. And, And maybe that's why I love Christmas so much, because for years, that's all I thought it was. And I thought of myself as a fairly enlightened person for understanding the real reason behind the season, beyond Santa Claus, beyond the gifts. Many of us try and take that step beyond Santa and the gifts and tell ourselves, no, no, I'm really going to think about the real meaning of Christmas this year. And we tend to think about the birth of Jesus, a baby. Jesus in the manger and the wise men and the announcement that we just heard about from the angels. And that's a great step forward in contemplating what Christmas is all about. But I want to ask you to go even one step beyond that. Yes, Christmas is when we observe the birth of Jesus, but you know what? Every religious system that has ever existed usually has a figurehead that goes along with it, and that figurehead has a birthday too. What separates Christianity from every other religious system with a a figurehead and a birthday? Well, that's what I want us to think about today. That's what I want us to contemplate. I want us to back up even one step before the birth of Jesus and contemplate the mechanics behind the birth of Jesus. Because do you realize just the miracle, the miracle that it is that Jesus was born? Remember, remember what it is that you and I confess as Christians, not just that Jesus was a good moral person, even that he was a perfect moral person, not just that he was a good teacher, but that he was all those things, and he was the Son of God. He is the Son of God, God with us. And again, let's even contemplate what we mean by Son of God, God with us. As the Nicene Creed says, he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same essence as the Father. This is what we Christians confess. You see what we're confessing? We're saying Jesus, God incarnate, Jesus, God in the flesh, God in the flesh, So you see, just to say, yes, Jesus was born, we first have to say, how in the world did that happen? How did we get God in the flesh? This can't just be another ordinary birth. An ordinary birth doesn't produce God in the flesh. Back when I was uh, much younger, Back in like the 1980s, life was different. Today, if my family and I ever, for instance, will will go to watch a movie at our house, uh, most always and inevitably, my kids will bring with them buckets of popcorn. Sometimes this occurs even in the middle of the movie, right in the middle of the movie, one of them will proclaim, pause, it's intermission time, and they'll run downstairs and, and pop all the popcorn, and each one getting a bag of microwave popcorn. And inside of five minutes, they have their bags of popcorn, and we can then resume the movie. Now, back when I was a kid, we didn't have microwave popcorn. That's how old I am. That's quite a long time ago. Our way of making popcorn was much more difficult and complicated. It involved pots and pans and and special appliances. How many of you remember the hot air corn popper? You remember that? Yep. It's like a hairdryer turned upside down and all the kernels danced around in there. That was one way you can do it. That that was pretty good, but you could also make make popcorn on the stovetop. You'd get the oil. You'd get the popping corn and in a giant pot and you'd add a bunch of butter to it in spite of the fact that it was 
popped in oil, right? Then you'd cover it in butter. You know, back in the, back in the 1980s, butter didn't matter. It, it, it didn't hurt you. And I, and I have, have fond memories of this. My dad and I would make these giant bags of popcorn and we'd pour butter all over it. Uh, we'd have a giant grocery bag where we'd put the popped kernels in and, and I would shake it as my dad poured, slowly poured the butter all over it, followed by salt, an obscene amount of salt. And it was delicious. We loved it. It tasted much better than the stuff that comes out of the microwave bag. Now, once in a while, every now and again, we get, to the, uh, get the idea of making popcorn and then realize we're, we're either out of butter or we're out of oil or out of the kernels or, or we didn't have all the things that we needed to make the, the popcorn. The whole process would come to a grinding halt. Now, that's the advantage of microwave popcorn. Everything you have, is, everything you need is just one, one little container. But one missing ingredient, one missing ingredient in the whole process would be ruined. Okay? What does that have to do with Christmas? I'll tell you, it has to do with the ingredients. The ingredients that you must have if you're going to say Jesus, in Jesus we have God incarnate. Two of the essential components that we must have if we're going to have God incarnate are, well, it was just read for us a moment ago. That's what Kirk just read. Starting in verse 30, it said, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. He'll be God. He'll be God, God in the flesh. Then picking up in verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called Holy, Son of God. So there are the two ingredients that we must have if we're going to have the Son of God, God incarnate. Did you catch it? Mary said, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And that's the first component. That's the first component. We need a virgin birth. And, and the second component, the response to Mary's question, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. That's the second component, conceived of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the thing. If you take either one of those components away, you take just one ingredient out, believe it or not, the whole thing falls apart. The whole thing, I've, I've heard it said and even argued by some theologians throughout, the, throughout history that say it doesn't matter how Jesus came to the earth. It only matters what he did while he was on the earth. That is unequivocally false. Why is being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary such a big deal? Why does that matter? If you've been around Christ Pres for a while, we, we've made the point more than once in our, in our sermons and in all of our discipleship materials we really do repeat this idea a lot that, that the Bible has a consistent narrative from beginning to end. The whole Bible, the whole Bible is about Jesus. It's, it's more pronounced in the New Testament, but the New Testament reveals what was once concealed in the Old Testament. Every psalm, every prophecy in the Old Testament, they, all, all of them, all of them point to Jesus. The point of all of it was Jesus. Jesus was the one that the whole Old Testament was about and the New Jesus said so himself in, in the 24th chapter of Luke when he told the disciples, essentially, it all points to me. Every law, every, every psalm, every story, it all points to me. It's all a story about me. So if all of it, if all of it, the entirety of the Old Testament, if it all points to Jesus, let me ask you this question. 
right from the start, right from the get-go, right from the very beginning, how does Adam point us to Jesus? How does Adam point us to Jesus? Think about that. I'm going to come back to that one. I'm going to answer it shortly. But to get there, I also want us to think about the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. How does that point us to Jesus? How do Old Testament sacrifices point us to Jesus? When we read about the sacrifices, many people will think that the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system was a means of making up for the sins that you committed. If you sinned, okay, now you have to go make a sacrifice to make up for it, to atone for it. And once you did that, well, then you were back on good terms with God. And well, that's what God tried for a little while, and, and it wasn't working out, so we had to come up with another plan, and that's where Jesus comes in. Well, see, that's not quite right. The sacrifices of the Old Testament point forward. They point toward the ultimate sacrifice that was to come, the effective sacrifice. That of Jesus' sacrificial giving of his own life on our behalf. Those sacrifices of the Old Testament were foreshadowing the sacrifice of Jesus. That one day, the perfect sacrifice would come and remove your sins from your account. It's not that the animals of the Old Testament took away your sin. It's that they pointed forward to the one who would. Hebrews 10.4 tells us, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Impossible. At the most basic level, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament said this. It was God's way of saying, I'm going to provide for you something that will sacrifice its own life to pay for, to make atonement for the sins that you have committed. I'm going to provide that. You see, sin represents death. The result and consequence of sin is death. This is why the Bible tells us in Romans 6, 6 3, the wages of sin is death. And to balance out the perfect scales of justice, if I could say that, God's perfect scales of justice, it must be paid through life because, because sin is painful. Sin is costly. So when you brought your sacrifice to God, it had to, be, it had to be a sacrifice. It had to be costly. You couldn't bring the runt of the litter. You couldn't bring the three-legged lamb to, to, to the slaughter. It had to be an animal, a sacrifice without blemish. It had to be perfect. It had to be the best of the best. Deuteronomy 17.1 says this, You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord. See that? That's point number one. That's point number one you have to realize as we contemplate the virgin birth. As we contemplate the announcement of the angels, the sacrifice had to be without blemish or defect. It had to be perfect. We need a perfect sacrifice. If you have a sacrifice, if you don't have a sacrifice without defect or blemish, then you don't have a sacrifice. So as we contemplate what the angel is announcing here to Mary, remember this. Number one, we need a sacrifice without blemish. Must be perfect. Let me ask you another question. Are you the type of person that is strict about expiration dates on food? You are? Good. Is that something you observe pretty strictly? I know I do. Okay, so if you have milk that is one day past expiration, is that still good to you? Yeah, so if it's just a little spoiled, is that okay? If it's just a little spoiled, 
right? Just a little bad is okay. Some of you perhaps are fine with one day past, right? But if you're like me, if I'm drinking a milk that I know is one day past for expiration, I'm sweating. I'm nervous. With milk, it's either good or bad, right? You don't want, you don't want milk that's, well, just a little bad, right? It's okay to drink this. It's just a little bad. No, a little bad is all the way bad when it comes to milk. So you see, this is also the universal problem that faces humanity. We're, we're all tainted. We're all infected with sin. A little bad is all the way bad. And this may come as a surprise to you, but when you look at a newborn baby, it's hard to think about it. It's hard to imagine. But has that little baby, has that newborn been tainted by sin? Sadly, yes. It's a part of Adam's race. That baby is tainted by the fall of man. In, in uh, Psalm 51.5, David laments the fact by, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What David is suggesting here is that before he was even born, he was tainted by sin. It wasn't even out of the mother's womb, and he was infected by sin's curse. Paul goes into more detail talking about how one, the one sin of Adam tainted the entire batch. The whole of humanity. This is Romans 5, 12 and following. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. You see what he's saying there? He's noting the fact that even before there was a law, even before there was a law to break, sin was in us. Sin entered the world through Adam, and now the whole batch is ruined. It's all bad. It's a universal problem. It's a deep-rooted problem. It's, it's not like you made it 23 days into your life before you committed your first sin. Paul and David are saying the problem is way more serious than that. Your sin has been with you since you were conceived. Adam passed that along to you. Before you were even aware of what right and wrong were, you were infected by sin, even before you were born. You know, I'm not suggesting this is something genetic, but what I am suggesting is that Adam was your if I could say this, your federal representative. He perfectly represented you and stood in your place. And through that representation, sin was passed along. Or hear this word, sin was imputed to you. So there's point number two as we contemplate the announcement of the angel. Every single human since Adam has been infected with sin. There's no way around it. Again, it's not like we had a few humans among us who made a valiant effort and made it, what, seven months, right, before they sinned. Every one of us, every one of us since before birth have been infected by sin's curse. Point number two, sin is passed along to us from before birth. You see the problem we have here? You see how point two is directly impacted by point one. If the sacrifice must be perfect, it must be without blemish, how do you do that if sin is passed along to us from inside the womb? We can't birth a perfect sacrifice. So how do you get around this? As somewhat of an aside, it, it, it certainly matters, but here's the reality. Here's the only reason we need that, that makes the idea of a virgin birth essential. 
And it's reflected in the practice I'm trying to, to be especially mindful of lately. The older my kids get, sometimes my kids will ask me for something. I have to, I have to say no. I can't say yes to everything, right? Then it's at this point where they think that it's their cue for them to mount their best defense against my answer. Dad, can I stay up late tonight and, and play this game with my friends? Everyone's playing it. The answer is no, because it's a school night. I'm sorry, okay? And here's the thing. We've been over this a hundred times before. Sometimes my wife and I have to, we have to, we have to bring a shovel into their room in the morning to literally scrape them out of their beds and peel them out of the bed, literal physical force to get them out of their beds. And when they get up, they're all cranky and full of attitude and they tell us how tired they are. And somehow it's always our fault too. That's the kicker. You see, this is why you go to bed on time, we tell them. If you went to bed when we told you to go to bed, it wouldn't be this bad. They, they don't hear us. And they say, no, why, why, can't, why can't we stay up late? It seems more often not the next question when we say, no, you can't stay up late is why not? Why not? Why? You know why not, we tell them. And that's when they launch into their defense. They promise they won't have trouble getting up. They promise they won't affect their mood the next day. They promise they'll be bright and bubbly and, and they'll do all these things. And then we've been through this way too many times for us to know any different, right? And so their best defense is followed by, so can we? Can we? Can we? Can we? And they keep going. And you know what? I remain silent. I've, I've already answered this question. So I'm pulling the dad card here, and I'm just going to remain silent while they continue on with the, can we? Can we? Before they eventually realize, you know what? He's not going to say anything. You know why? He's doing his, his whole dad routine of ask and answer. And then they quietly go away. <laughs> Sometimes quietly, Right? Why is the answer? Why can't they stay up late playing their game? Why is that? It's because I said so. Sometimes that's, that's the only explanation I need to, I don't need to give them one. It's just because I said so. Sometimes that's the answer. Is the virgin birth a necessary essential? Yes. Aside from the fact that, as we've noted, the whole system falls apart without it, add to that, plain and simple, he said so. He said so. He said this is the way it would happen, so don't be surprised when it happens this way. All the way back in Isaiah, hundreds of years before Christ, Isaiah the prophet told us in Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So if it happens any other way, if it's not a virgin birth, what happens? It, it undermines the credibility of Scripture. It undermines the credibility of his word. He said so, plain and simple. So, so, to, take, so, 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 so to, to take out the question... Um, uh, you know, to, to take it out is to question God at his word. This is why God said it would happen this way, and, and so it had to happen this way. But why did it, going back to the original question, why did it necessarily have to happen? Yes, because God said so, first and foremost, but also because we have a problem here. We still have these, these two issues here. We, we still need a perfect sacrifice and sin comes by way of Adam to all of us. No one is exempt. How do we get around it? How do we get around it? The Holy Spirit came upon her, a virgin, and he conceived in her the one they would call Emmanuel, God with us. And so do you see what that does? In Christian theology, we don't say that God, or we don't say that Jesus is, is half God and half man. We don't say that. We say that he is fully God and fully man. How do you do that? By conception of the Holy Spirit through the, through the Virgin Mary. So, so why did Jesus have to be born of a virgin? A lot of people 
believe it had to be a virgin so Jesus could be born of a, of a pure vessel, as it were, but that's not the case. Remember what we've already said, everyone, everyone has the sin of Adam. That's been passed on to everyone, even Mary. Protestants and Catholics would disagree on this matter, but, but for Protestant churches, we hold to the fact that, yes, even Mary was a sinner tainted by sin's curse. Mary, just like you and I, according to David and Paul, was conceived in sin. So why did the Lord need to use a virgin? The Lord used a virgin to carry the Savior, not to have a pure vessel for the Lord. Rather, more simply, he used a virgin to show, to display, to prove that it was of God and not man. Let there be no doubt that it was God because this woman has never been with a man. Jesus was without an earthly biological father. Can you think of anyone else who was without an earthly biological father? Adam. Remember, I told you we were going to come back to this, how Adam points us to Jesus. Jesus finds his parallel in Adam, who didn't have an earthly father. You see, if Jesus was not born of a virgin, if he was born to a married woman who already had three children, then do you see all the doubt it casts on the Savior? Who's really the father? Well, so what? So, so, so he has a human father. What's the big deal? If he has a human father, the gospel crumbles. If Jesus has a human father, the sin of Adam is passed along to Jesus too. So the virgin birth tells us that he doesn't have a human father and also tells us that the, that the conception happened by way of the Holy Spirit who, like Adam, wasn't formed with human DNA. He was formed to the Father. And because this is how Jesus was formed too, by way of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't get the sin of Adam. Think about that. Think about that. Every human being that has ever walked the face of the earth, each and every one, good or bad, moral or evil, Christian or non-Christian, each and every one of them is a descendant of Adam, except for one, Jesus Christ. This is why the scriptures refer to Jesus as the second Adam, or a new and better Adam. This is what Paul is telling us in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 and following. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was born from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You see what this is saying? Although Adam came first, just like we were saying before, he was only a pointer. He's only a pointer to what would be fulfilled in Jesus. Adam showed us our problem. The second Adam did as the first Adam should have done. Adam lived with reference to us as our representative, but the second Adam also lived with reference to us as our representative. We got, we got Adam's sin imputed to us. How is that fixed? The second Adam imputes his righteousness to us. And because Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit and not Adam, original sin is circumvented and Jesus is born without sin. 
And it's like we're starting over, if I can say that. It's like a second birth. Jesus, here we go. This is Christmas. Jesus came into the world, God incarnate, without sin. This is the first time that's happened since Cain. That's a miracle. A mere ordinary birth wouldn't do as every other religious figure that has ever lived, representing every other religious system, they all had an ordinary birth. Not one of them circumvented Adam's sin. Only Jesus did that. And that's what separates him from them. That's the miracle of Christmas. Before we even get to the birth, Jesus was born without sin and then lived without sin. And not only did he live without sin, he lived righteously and did everything that Adam should have done and didn't do. And then that record was passed along to you. You are the beneficiary of Emmanuel's perfect birth and perfect work. Our uh, Advent series this year is entitled, When God Gives a Gift. This, too, is what separates Jesus from every other religion. As we approach Christmas, this Christmas season, certainly we're thinking about gifts. You know, what are we going to get and what are we going to buy? Every other religious figure of every other religion asks, what gift are you going to bring me? What can you do for me? What sacrifice can you make for me? Only the one true God would say, you don't have a gift that will be sufficient. I will have to provide the gift and give it to you. You can't make a perfect gift. Only I can do that, which is what I did in the form of Jesus, God with us, a gift without blemish who gave his body and his blood that we might find favor with God. Merry Christmas. Pray with me. Our dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the perfect gift that only you could give. You require perfection, and perfection is not something we can make. It's not something we can manufacture. So what, what hope do we have? Father, our only hope is in you, who would give of yourself and give us Jesus Christ, God with us, God in the flesh. Only this would serve as the perfect gift, the perfect sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice that you've given to us so that we might be restored and redeemed. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.